Uh, it is a great joy to see all of you again and to be back for class. I've been missing being here, and so I am thrilled that we get to start engaging again with this wonderful book. Uh, let me open us with a word of prayer, and then we will jump in. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of this time together. We thank you for the wisdom from your scriptures that we will see tonight when we study your word, and for the wisdom that we will see as we look at the great divorce. Lord, we thank you for this book and for how it points us to the things of your kingdom and the truth that we find in your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us to put aside all of the things with which we've been distracted during the day, and that you would open our hearts that you might speak to us a word um, from your Holy Spirit as we are gathered together tonight. We thank you for this time and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this should be an easy thing to guess. Yes, it's you too, but what? Yes, thank you, Sarah, good job. Um, there is a reason that we're listening to this. I'm gonna let it go for just a little bit. So more about that later, but one of the things that is wonderful about that version is it is being sung with a gospel choir um, in New York City. And uh, so there's some cool things about that, but the song relates very much to the chapter we'll be looking at tonight. So let's begin as usual by saying our scripture verse together. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. And there is great truth in that verse about how many people uh, who are out there 
teaching or saying things that uh, tickle our ears, that make us feel comfortable. And uh, one uh, preacher said one time that his job was to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And uh, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And so sometimes we need to be stirred out of our comfort. And The Great Divorce is a book that really does that, which is one of the reasons that we're studying it. So we are still continuing to welcome new people, both in person and online. So if you are new uh, for 2023, welcome. We're glad that you're here. There are three ways to approach this class. You can be on the beach, which basically means you appear from time to time and you get whatever you get through osmosis. Um, you might not be paying attention. You might be asleep. You might be reading a different book. Um, it's all good. We're just glad to have you here. Or you can snorkel, which means that on the parts that you like, you choose to go deeper. Or you can scuba dive, which means that you might possibly be a nerd like I am and want to go all the way down every rabbit hole and research everything. And there are a number of you out there and you know who you are and I'm glad that you are with us. If you are not on my email list, uh, if you're here in person, please sign up on the sheet. Uh, if you are out in the podcast or live stream land, please Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and find me and shoot me an email and ask me to add you because there are a lot of resources and things that we don't get to in class that will come with the email. Um, a couple of things about this book, if you're new to it, uh, it's a short book, and it's really easy if you are a quick reader to just sit down and read the whole thing and think, eh, that was fine. But I would encourage you not to read it that way. Uh, if you want to read all the way through, that's fine, but then go back and just read one chapter at a time and chew on the chapters, because they are chewy if you will give them time and focus. Uh, and an announcement, everybody, unless you've been under a rock, has heard me talk about mere Anglicanism, uh, and you have probably also heard that it is sold out with 800 people from around the world. It is now, uh, I've been told by several friends who are Lewis scholars, the largest Lewis conference that's ever been held ever anywhere, uh, which is kind of amazing. But we still need your help. So we are trying to offer all of these people who are coming to our fair city warm Christian hospitality. And so we need some extra hands for that. Um, even if you're not registered for the conference, uh, you can volunteer, and that means you'll get to go to some of the sessions without paying. Uh, which is a great deal. So if you're interested in that, you can email me or um, text me or whatever you like. Uh, we would love to have you help. So way back in 2022, if anybody can remember that far back, back when you were young, uh, we were on chapter seven of this book. And chapter seven uh, was the book about the hard-bitten ghost. And it is one of those chapters that was such a great one to look at at the end of the year as you're getting ready to start a new year to see what not to do in the new year. So just to remind you of what happened. So 
Uh, Lewis, the narrator, was feeling unnerved by the presence of this giant angel that was in the waterfall speaking, and he wanders downstream and runs into this other ghost who is a hard-bitten man who asks Lewis if he's going to go back to the gray town. And Lewis says he hasn't decided yet, but the ghost says that he's going back, that he's seen all there is to see, that it's all propaganda, that there was never any real chance of staying since you can't eat the fruit or drink the water or even walk on the grass. And he says he has traveled extensively. He's been to Peking. He's been everywhere. Peking, for those of you who are younger, is what we now refer to as Beijing uh, in China. And that everywhere he's gone, it's just an advertising stunt run by the same people, that there's nothing that's interesting. There's nothing that's beautiful. It's all just the same. And he says, even the gray town is the same way, disappointing and no really interesting people there. Lewis, on the other hand, fairly boldly, says that he actually prefers the heavenly country and thinks you could get acclimatized to it by staying there. But the ghost says it's the same old lie told all through life, that doing the right thing or being disciplined and persevering would lead to a better life. The hard-bitten ghost says, that's not true. They, they, the same old ring, are running everything. And they could rescue you and help you have a wonderful and meaningful life, but they would rather that you be miserable. There's a whole committee of people out there whose sole aim in life is to make you miserable. So the ghost says there's no point in being rescued because there's nothing to do either in the heavenly country or in the gray town because they have failed in their obligation to keep people from being poured. They have an obligation to keep you entertained because the purpose of your life is to be entertained. But they have failed in that. And the ghost says all the parsons and moralists have got things upside down and keep asking people to change when instead they, the people in charge, ought to adjust reality to suit their public. And that Lewis, after listening to all this, is depressed, and he says he will stay in the heavenly country nevertheless. And the ghost walks off saying it's going to rain soon, and then Lewis will find that the rain pierces him like machine gun shots. Well, that was a cheery way to end the year, wasn't it? Um, so there's some themes here, though, that we all can learn from, and some of this hits a little bit close to home. First is that pessimism becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you expect terrible things to happen to you, you will find terrible things. You will look at everything through a lens of darkness, and you will find that that pessimism appears in your life. Cynicism and complaining make it impossible to experience joy. It is literally impossible to have joy while you are complaining about something. And there's a verse from Philippians that we talked about that tells us if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that you are to do everything. That is a large, inclusive word, everything. Do everything without arguing or complaining. How many of you have complained today? 
But the interesting thing is the second part of that verse. Not just are we to do everything without arguing or complaining, but the result of that is that so that the world may come to believe as you hold out the word of life because you are shining like stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. In other words, if we would live in that way, people would be drawn more to the gospel. Thirdly, believing that the purpose of life is to be entertained leads only to despair. There's a lot of that out there in our culture right now because if you look at the survey of entering college freshmen, most people's life goal is to have a good time. Now, there's anything wrong with having a good time. I like to have a good time as much as the next person. But if that is the goal of your life, you are going to be sorely disappointed. And then fourthly, blaming others for everything results in bitter inertia. That if you think that it's somebody else's fault that your life is the way that it is and you don't take responsibility, you are going to get stuck with that root of bitterness. So, much to learn from there about how to approach 2023. So, that brings us to chapter 8. And poor Lewis, at the end of chapter 7, he's very depressed and he's very nervous because he thinks if it rains, what this ghost has been telling him about might happen, and it would be like being shot by a machine gun. So he's filled with doubts, and he wonders whether this whole journey that he's been on is a cruel joke, that he and the others on the bus have been brought up to this country only to be taunted, as in the myth of Tantalus and Cooper's poem, as well as a verse from Revelation, and we're going to explain that in a minute. In the chapter, it says this, Terror whispered, this is no place for you. Lewis contemplated all the things that could go wrong, the rain that could come and pierce him. And then he starts thinking about what would happen if one of the giant flying insects flew at his head, that his head might just like explode or get knocked off. So now he's terrified seeing these flying insects. Imagine if he was in the low country in August. He's terrified. And then he remembers he saw lions prowling around. So at this point, he is literally beside himself. And he decides, he decides to go hide in this grove of trees. All the while thinking, if only I could find even a trace of evidence that it was really possible for a ghost to stay, that the choice was not just a cruel comedy, I would not go back. The desire of his heart is to be there, but he doesn't see how it's possible. So then he sees another ghost. This time, it's a well-dressed woman who had been clad in finery, hobbling probably on her high heels, and trying to hide by the same tree. And there is a bright heavenly spirit that has come to her and is following her, talking to her, and she pleads for the spirit to leave her alone, to go away. Can't you see I want to be alone? But the spirit doesn't do that. And she says, have some decency, leave me alone. But the spirit says, no, no, you're going in the wrong direction. 
And he offers that are the heart of this beautiful far green country. But she is not interested, even though he says he will carry her practically if need be. She is horrified by the prospect of his help and says that he does not understand at all where she is coming from, that she could not possibly go with him where people like him are dressed in bright light, saying, how can I go out like this among a lot of people with real solid bodies? It's far worse than going out with nothing on would have been on earth. Have everyone staring through me? They'll see me. I'd rather die. She is so worried that she's different in some way, that everyone else is dressed a certain way and she's the odd person out. And when she was on earth, she apparently was someone who was very fashion forward, who was very well turned out, and people would look at her and comment about how well put together she was and how lovely she looked, and her appearance was very, very important to her. And she says now, because she's the odd person out, she can't even bear to be seen by anyone. So the bright spirit, right after she said, I'd rather die, the bright spirit points out she already did die. And Lewis has these little very sardonic bits of humor in here that I think are hilarious. So he, he kindly points out that she's already dead. And she wails, I wish I'd never been born. What are we born for? And she's clearly expecting that the ghost is going to say something, born for trouble and then to die or something like that. But instead, the ghost turns with this radiant smile and says, you were born for infinite happiness. You can step out into it at any moment. And she, of course, is shocked by this. And then he tries to explain to her what her problem is. He says, don't you remember on earth that there were things that were too hot to touch with your finger, but you could drink them all right? Like that cup of really hot, hot chocolate that if you touch it with your finger, it burns you. But if you're just sort of slurping a little bit over the edge of the mug, you can finish it and it gets better and better. And all of a sudden, you finished that whole mug that you thought was too hot to drink. And the bright spirit says to her, shame is like that. If you will accept the shame rather than denying it, if you will drink the cup to the bottom, you will find it very nourishing. But try to do anything else with it and it scalds. Come and try, he begs her. And Lewis thought the ghost was going to obey. It had moved toward the spirit. But suddenly the ghost cried out, No, I can't. I tell you, I can't. For a moment while you were talking, I almost thought, but when it comes to the point, you've no right to ask me to do a thing like that. It's disgusting. I should never forgive myself if I did. Never, never. And it's not fair. They ought to have warned us. I'd never have come. And now, please, please, go away. Friend, said the spirit, could you only for a moment fix your mind on something not yourself? Ouch.
I've already given you my answer, said the ghost, coldly but still tearful. Then only one expedient remains, said the spirit, and to my great surprise, he set a horn to his lips and blew. At the sound, hooves could be heard in the distance, and suddenly they could see a great herd of beautiful unicorns heading straight at them. I heard the ghost scream, and I think it made a bolt away from the bushes, perhaps toward the spirit, but I don't know. My own nerve failed, and I fled. So there's a lot going on here, and part of what's going on is this woman's extreme self-consciousness and her extreme sense of her and the way she looks and her appearance. Everything is all about her, and she perceives her world in terms of what other people are thinking of her at every moment. And to her, the idea of going out with this ghost-like body, with the tatters of her St. John knit or whatever it might be, um, wrapped around her and her fur that's falling apart, she's used to being beautiful and looked up to. And to walk out and to be a see-through ghost in a land of these radiant, bright spirits is just appalling to her. And the other little bit of humor that Lewis puts in, the bright, spirits point, the bright spirit points out to her that he's not actually wearing anything at all. <laughs> but she is so worried about her dress and her appearance that she can't see any of that. And the ghost goes right to the point, this, the bright spirit rather, goes right to the point and says, could you only for a moment fix your mind on something, not yourself. If there were ever a question that needed to be asked in our culture today, to most of us, it might be that same one. So a couple of explanations about this imagery. Some of you who are experts in Greek mythology will already know all of this, but I beg your indulgence for the rest of us. So in Greek mythology, Tartarus is this great abyss, and it's a place of torment where the souls are judged after death, and many of them are tortured there. And Tantalus is one of the characters who, uh, in Greek mythology, is sent to Tartarus by the gods because he has done really appalling things. And they're so appalling, I'm not going to really go into them because it's disgusting. But anyway, Tantalus is sent there, and the gods have devised a truly cruel, torturous punishment for him. So he is standing in a pool of beautiful, clear water. And every time he leans to try to drink from it, the water recedes beyond where he can reach. And then there is this beautiful, succulent, fragrant fruit that comes down on these boughs right in front of him. And as he begins to grasp for it, it is snatched up just beyond the farthest of his reach. So he can't get water and he can't get fruit. And day and night, he repeats this over and over again. So Lewis is referencing this image in the chapter that we talked about last time when the hard-bitten ghost says, of course, there's never any question of her staying. You can't eat the fruit, 
and you can't drink the water, and it takes all your time to walk on the grass. Um, the second thing that Lewis references in the chapter is a quotation, sort of a paraphrase that he does from Revelation 14. And in that uh, verse, it says, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. And the idea here that the hard-bitten ghost is playing with is the idea that this heavenly country is just a mirage and it's been set up to torture them by putting something beautiful in front of them that they cannot attain to. And then William Cooper, I don't know how many of you are familiar with William Cooper, one of the great poets, uh, one of the great hymn writers of all time, but someone who was plagued with mental illness and depression and anxiety um, that was immobilizing to him. And he was uh, befriended by the great British preacher and hymn writer John Newton, um, the former slave trader who was deeply converted to the Christian faith, who was the author of the hymn Amazing Grace. And he befriended Cooper and um, helped Cooper get into an institution where he could be nursed back to health. And Cooper came out and he still had dark spells, but he would have these periods where he was just on fire for the gospel. And he wrote two wonderful hymns that we still sing today, Oh, for a closer walk with God, and there is a fountain filled with blood. And one of the things about Cooper is that part of what was so difficult for him was trying to get his head around how deep and wide was God's mercy, because he had such a sense of his own sin and his own shame that he felt so guilty for that he just didn't see how God for, could forgive him. And he talked one time about having this dream where he dreamed that he was um, such a good guy that he'd done enough good things that he was acceptable in God's sight and would avoid hell. Um, but then he woke and he realized that he was doomed on his own, that there was no way on his own that he could do it but for the grace of God, the only thing he could rely on. So Lewis quotes all of these, and this is, this is just a little lesson for when you're reading Lewis. It's really easy when you read a chapter like this to see Tartarus and Tantalus and go, I don't know what that is, I don't care, I'm just gonna keep going until I get to a part I understand. Please don't do that because everything that Lewis puts in these chapters is there for a reason. When you look particularly at how short the chapters are, if he put it in there, there's a reason for it. So getting behind these images will really enrich the chapter for you. So there are a number of major themes in this chapter. And the first one is our image and external appearance are of no consequence to God and can be an impediment to our spiritual growth. Now, I'm sorry if I just burst anyone's bubble with that. Um, you may have thought that God put you on this planet because you were God's gift to man or woman because you are so good looking and you are so well-dressed and uh, 
I'm sorry to tell you that is not your spiritual gift. Uh, God does not care about that. God tells us that you are fearfully and wonderfully made and that you are made in his image and that you have dignity and worth because of that, that even though you are fallen, you have been redeemed at infinite cost through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is where your identity is. And whether you look beautiful or not has nothing to do with it. And focusing on this external beauty is an impediment to your spiritual growth. One of the things that is so deeply ironic that I think is part of the scheme of Satan is that we live in a time where people talk about narcissism a lot. You've heard us talk about narcissism from the pulpit. No matter what newspaper or news outlet you listen to or read, you will see people talking about this is the most narcissistic generation ever. But if you asked people on the street who was Narcissus, what is the root of the word narcissism, most of them would be like, huh? You might get a few that said, I think a narcissus is like a daffodil, which is true, but narcissus is like Tartarus and Tantalus, a character from Greek mythology. And narcissus was a beautiful young man who was ravishingly handsome. And he was so handsome that it formed his whole identity and everyone fell down and did what he wanted because he was so beautiful to look at. And he eventually became so obsessed with his own beauty that he found this small pond that was completely still that looked like a mirror. And he would go every day and gaze at his own beauty in this reflection until ultimately he came closer and closer to that reflection and drowned in the water. So narcissism is not a nice thing to say. It means you're so obsessed with yourself that it will be fatal in the long run. And the problem with us is that we live in a culture that is built around trying to look good. And I'm not saying that you should like just let yourself completely fall apart. That's not what I'm saying. But I do think that we need to pause a little bit and look at how much money and time and energy goes into trying to look good. And if that is what our self-esteem and our identity is rooted in, that is not going to help our soul. And it can be an impediment to our spiritual growth. Listen to what the ghost says. The bright spirit says to her, what is the matter? Because, I mean, think about this in context of this bright spirit full of joy and this beautiful smile has come to this ghost to welcome her into the heavenly country and says, if you're having trouble walking, I will carry you into these mountains where there's everlasting joy. And she's like, eh, no thank you. That shows you that her thinking is twisted. So he says, what's the matter? And she says, can't you understand anything? Do you really suppose I'm going out there among all those people like this? But why not? I'd never have come at all if I'd known you were all going to be dressed like that. 
and then the little humor. Friend, you see, I'm not dressed at all. But she's so worried that people are going to look down on her because of her external appearance. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I bet you every one of us has thought that at some time in our lives. And we all are afflicted with this. And we need to hold on to the truth of Scripture. Um, And I love both of these verses. The first one in that wonderful story when Samuel has gone to find uh, someone to anoint as the king to succeed Saul. And <laughs> it's really sort of funny when you read it because he, he sees, oh, the tall guy, he's got, it's got to be the tall guy, it's the anointed one. And he just keeps, the Lord keeps saying, nope, not him, not him, not him. And he finally gets to David. And in the, in the verse it says, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That is something we could all learn from. And then 1 Peter 3, and we tend to think of this as addressed to women, but it can equally be addressed to men. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And one of the things I would commend to you to do, we have in our parish family a number of people that I think are well, they might not quite be saints who are ready to be canonized, uh, but elderly people who have walked with the Lord for a long time. And most of them are wrinkled and crouched over and are not going to win any beauty contest. But when you spend time with them, it blesses your soul because the radiance of the joy and the peace that they have from having walked with the Lord for decades, um, particularly in this shallow culture that we live in where we don't value wisdom, it is stunning. It is a type of inward beauty that is more mesmerizing than any outward beauty ever could be. So second theme, comparing ourselves with others and feeling less than can be a ploy that Satan uses to keep us from the joy God intends for us. And this, again, is something that we are taught this from the moment we are in nursery school. We are comparing ourselves with others and sort of figuring out where people are on the totem pole. And Satan uses that to keep us from joy and make us miserable. So the ghost says to the bright spirit, do go away. But can't you even tell me, if you can't understand, there'd be no good trying to explain it. How can I go out like this among a lot of people with real solid bodies? It's far worse than going out with nothing on would have been on earth. Have everyone staring through me. So this well-dressed woman says, this is so horrible to contemplate 
It's worse than it would have been than to walk out on King Street naked in the middle of the day. She just can't imagine it. And the problem, part of what we're seeing here is the idea of how frightened we are of people seeing us as we are. That we have to keep up a mask, we have to keep up a front, we couldn't just be who we really are. And this whole idea of comparing ourselves robs us of joy. Um, there's a great parable that Jesus tells about the workers in the vineyard who are hired at different times during the day. And the ones that are hired early in the day are delighted that they were hired and they're being paid a good wage, not extravagant, but better than normal for a day's work. So they're thrilled that they've gotten to work. But then the master goes out and hires some other people later in the day and they only work half the day and they get paid the same thing as the people at the beginning. Now, if they hadn't known anything about that, they would have gone home happy as clams at the end of the day. But the instant they think somebody got a better deal than they did, boom. No more joy, complaining, feeling less than, and it robs us of joy when we look at other people's circumstances. We go, well, I wish I could be like that. Uh, there's a great sonnet from Shakespeare about that that I'll send you in the email. Uh, but listen to these words from Scripture, from Romans 12. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. And then from Proverbs 14, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. And then from Philippians 2, do nothing. Here's another one of those inclusive words, nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Can you imagine what our culture would look like if people actually did that? To consider in humility others better than yourself and to not be all worried about your own interest, but be looking at how you can bless others. Thirdly, shame, and there's a great little handout about shame tonight that I would commend to you. Shame can be a gift from God if it causes us to realize our utter bankruptcy and need for Jesus. And this is one of those things, uh, those of you that studied the screw tape letters will remember in one of the letters there was a little comment from the devil about how excited he was about the word puritanical and how he said it is one of the triumphs of our philology department, that is the language department, that we've changed the meaning of this word from these great godly heroes of the faith to make them look like mean old men that are looking around for anyone having fun so they can come down and say, stop it, you bad person. And shame, if this, if Screwtape was being written today, I think shame would be the word that he would have picked because Everywhere you go in our culture, you hear 
Don't let anyone shame you. Shame is bad. If you feel shame, you need to get rid of it. Go to a therapist if you feel shame. Shame is the worst thing that happened. You should never feel shame because you are enough. You speak your own truth. You are enough. No one should make you feel shame. But the problem with that is it's a lie. It's a lie. We're supposed to feel shame when we do shameful things. And Lewis is pointing this out, and again, this is why you have to read slowly. This is just two sentences, but I, I'm not going to do it, but I, you could like go on for hours just about these two sentences. So what, what the bright spirit says is, shame is like that. If you will accept it, if you will accept the shame, if you will drink the cup to the bottom, you will find it very nourishing but try to do anything else with it, and it scalds. And basically, shame, and I will say, there can be bad shame and false shame, um, but there's a lot of shame that is real and good and true, and shame comes from doing things of which you are ashamed, that you should be ashamed of. We all do things that we would not do um, in our best moments, and those are the things that we are ashamed of. Listen to these scriptures. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief is very much the same thing here as shame, that when we realize we're inadequate, we can't do what is right, just like Paul in Romans 7 um, we try to do the right thing, we're just going to fail. The more that we realize that on the front end and know that we just need to lean on the grace of Jesus Christ and his blood that was shed for us, that we are beggars at the foot of the cross, that when that's our starting point, that's where we begin to live a life that can have meaning and purpose and joy. And then from Hebrews 12 to looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And what that is saying, look at that linkage between shame and joy again. Jesus went to the cross the most shameful way that you could be put to death in that culture, and he embraced that death that God had called him to, that he did not deserve, and the fruit of life and resurrection life and the joy that would come after that, he could see that and knew that the shame of the cross was worth it. And then Paul. Paul is someone who experienced a lot of shame. Remember, Paul was the one persecuting and putting to death Christians um, who was arrogant and full of himself and finally was so bad that Jesus had to blind him and knock him off a horse onto his backside and speak with a voice out of the sky to get his attention. Now, you may be bad, but you're probably not that bad. But Paul realized that no matter how great all his accomplishments and breeding and training and all of that were, that none of it mattered. And his joy was because of what Jesus did on the cross. And Paul says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, 
I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And my friends, that is the recipe for following Jesus and experiencing joy and fulfillment. But from the world's perspective, that's crazy talk. Why would you want to do any of those things? But the truth is that Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection turned everything upside down. And we need to live in this kind of truth because we're being inundated with a flood that tells us this is not true. And then Paul again, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him, not because of you or how good-looking you are or anything you did. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. My friends here, it's deep truth there. Notice God is the one sending the shame in that verse. Over and over again, if God is sending the shame, that must mean that there are things to be learned from that. Fourth, our natural inclination to hide and isolate when we feel shame is born of pride and builds a wall between us and God. And you see this beautifully right in the beginning of this chapter. I saw that it had been a woman, a well-dressed woman, I thought, but its shadows of finery looked ghastly in the morning light. It was making for the bushes. It could not really get in among them. The twigs and the leaves were too hard, but it pressed as close up against them as it could. It seemed to believe it was hiding. A moment later, I heard the sound of feet, and one of the bright people came in sight. And I have to believe that when Lewis was writing this, he was remembering the story of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Um, because the whole thing about the footsteps and the sound of feet and the hiding in shame is exactly the same. So right after Adam and Eve have eaten the apple and realized that they were naked and sowed the fig leaves, this is what happens. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And the interesting thing is that in their shame, they want to hide. But look at what God does. God does not say, you stupid people, you blew my whole beautiful creation. All those seven days of good and good, and then I said, you were very good, and look what you did. You screwed it all up. I'm going to blow up the whole thing, you idiots. That is not what happens. God doesn't do any of that, and what he does, and remember, God is omniscient. He knows exactly what they've done. He can see them where they're hiding. It reminds me of my two-year-old grandson, John Henry, and John Henry says, hide, seek, hide, seek. And he'll look up at me and then he'll go, hide. <laughs> well, of course, he's right there in front of me. He's not hidden. That's the way Adam and Eve are here. They're not hidden. God sees them. But God, in his mercy, calls out to them and reaches out, taking the initiative in the midst of their failure and their shame and their having screwed up everything, he takes the initiative and says, where are you? It is, it is an extraordinary and beautiful thing. And then right after that comes um, the Proto-Evangelion, which I'm not gonna go off on, but basically where there is a prophecy right after this that the seed of woman will bruise the serpent's heel that God is going to use even this failure to bring about the salvation of mankind. It is just, ins it's insane. It's so amazing. And then this chapter ends with, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So, yes, there are consequences, but God makes provision for them. And this tree of life, when you get all the way, when you move from Genesis all the way to Revelation 21, at the end of the New Testament, there's that tree of life right there at the throne next to the river of life. But our problem is that we want to be just like Adam and Eve. We want to hide and isolate when we feel shame. But instead, what God calls us to is to run to him. And we talked about this a little bit last night in Theology on Tap, but the interesting thing is that when you look at how Jesus taught about this, you think about the most shameful, evil, wicked thing someone could do in Jesus' culture, it would be to say to your father, I wish you were dead, give me my money, and then let me just go off and do whatever I wanna do. And then to take that money and go off and spend it on prostitutes and gambling and every other horrible thing that would embarrass and humiliate the father. That is. Awful. And Jesus is the one that came up with this story. But look at what the reaction of the father is. The father is out there watching every day for the son to come back. He wants to embrace him. 
He doesn't want him to keep running away saying, oh, I'm so bad, I'm so bad. He wants to bring him back. He wants to put the robe on him, to put the ring on him, to kill the fatted calf, and to welcome him back home. And Jesus says that is what God's attitude toward us is like. And it is a lie from Satan that when we screw up, which we are all going to do every single day, and even when we really screw up badly, our Father wants us to run to him so that we can be taken in his arms, not to go and hide and isolate and pretend that he doesn't see. Fifthly, God wants to help us in our shame and to draw us into his light and away from the darkness of our sin and self-reliance. We just saw how God reached out to Adam and Eve. And I think Lewis is echoing that in the chapter. So the woman says, go away. Can't you see I want to be alone? But you need help, said the solid one. You can lean on me all the way. I can't absolutely carry you, but you need have almost no weight on your own feet and it will hurt less at every step. You can step out into infinite happiness at any moment. And I think that is a beautiful paraphrase in a different setting of the invitation of the gospel to each one of us. And yet we turn it down. We, we say, go away. I want to be left alone. But listen to what God's word says. But God demonstrates his lo own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then 1 Corinthians 2. As it has been written, what no eye has seen and no ear has heard and has not entered into the heart of man, what God has prepared for those who love him. Infinite joy is on offer. For once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything is exposed by the light and becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. My friends, God sees it all. He knows it all. He knows the secrets of our hearts. He is the one who made us. He knows us fully, and yet he chooses to love us fully. And we need to remember that and not let Satan push us into isolation. And as we live in this culture that rejects the whole idea of shame and wants to say we are enough, my friends, we can never be enough. We can never be enough. If you want to be miserable, just try being enough. Enough in your job, enough in your relationships. It is impossible. And without the love of Christ, um, we, are, we are unable to experience the joy that he desires for us. So coming back around to the song, the song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, uh, is by the band U2. 
Um, Bono, who's the lead singer of that, is someone who is deeply committed to Jesus. He and I don't agree about everything, but um, I think his heart for Jesus is very clear. And these words are so interesting. He says, I have spoke with the tongue of angels. I have held the hand of a devil. It was warm in the night. I was cold as a stone. I believe in the kingdom come. Then all the colors will bleed into one, bleed into one. But yes, I'm still running. You broke the bonds and you loosed my chains, carried the cross of my shame. Of my shame, you know I believe it, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And one time in an interview, he was talking about the fact that when we are living in this world and on this earth, we never fully experience what God has for us. That we have spoken, as it were, with the tongue of angels. We have praised the Lord, but because we're sinners, we've held the hand of the devil too. That we believe the right things. We understand what Jesus did for us on the cross, but we still fail, even though Christ carried that shame for us. But that one day, one day, when we pass from this life, if we know Jesus Christ, we will be free from all of that and we will have found what we are looking for and we will have found that infinite joy. So just to close this little section from early in the book, I believe to be sure that any man who reaches heaven will find that what he abandoned, even in plucking out his right eye, has not been lost that the kernel of what he was really seeking, even his most depraved wishes, will be there beyond expectation, waiting for him in the high countries. Let us pray. O Lord Jesus, we confess to you how full we are of pride and hypocrisy and concern about our image and how we look and comparing ourselves to others. And Lord, you are like the most loving grandfather in the world looking at that grandchild holding the hands over his eyes pretending to hide and that even when we're doing that that you pour out your love on us lord we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to understand the depth of your love for us to understand that even in the midst of our brokenness and sin and shame that your love for us is stronger than anything we could imagine. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live in the light of the truth of your kingdom and to share that light with this world that is so broken and so hurting and so filled with despair that people might know the joy that is found only in you. And for that, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.